Well, good morning once again. Is my voice clear through this microphone? Things are a little different than they, they were before. As Pastor Mark mentioned earlier in the service, if you don't yet have a copy of the vision statement that I've written called Committed to Glory, a vision for a hope and a future at Bethesda Church, I'd encourage you to pick one up at the back table on your way out of the service this morning. You won't need it right this minute, since today I'll be painting with broader strokes than I normally do. And I'll also be offering my testimony, which will mean that I'll be talking more about myself than I normally normally feel comfortable doing. So I won't be referring to the words on the pages of the vision statement too frequently, but when I do, they'll be projected on the screens. Now, if you do have it in front of you, uh, we won't go much past the first half of the first page. So I'd encourage you to take it home in the next couple of days, read it prayerfully, especially the three foundational commitments, the nine operational priorities, and the three-year plan at the end, since we won't really get there today. And really, this kind of a document is a different kind of format from a sermon anyway. So although in the coming weeks we'll look at it in greater detail, I'll go back to preaching as I normally do. Since Hebrews is the main inspiration for the vision and expository preaching is one of the priorities I mention in the vision statement, these will be sermons on shorter passages from the book of Hebrews. But as I say, for today, I'll be doing something kind of unusual for me, which is to try and preach a whole book of the Bible in the hope and prayer that it will kindle a fire of greater longing and commitment in you as it has in me. That is, the selfless commitment to God and to one another that springs from an awestruck recognition of what God has done for us in Christ. Before I go on, let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm conscious this morning as I prayed before the service of this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, that we are not alone assembled in this sanctuary, this auditorium, but we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem And the crowd of those who has gone before us is worshiping, falling down before your throne, proclaiming your goodness. Lord God, give us hearts that long to join with them, eyes that can begin to just barely see it. Give me a tongue, Lord that you have sanctified from your altar. Amen. So if you were here last week, you will have heard me express that I have far more than a good feeling about the future of Bethesda Church. That I'm more than thinking positive about the future of Bethesda Church 
As I said, I am absolutely certain about the future of Bethesda Church. How so? How, how can I say that after all of the realities that we heard about last week, which are true, the challenges are real? Well, it has nothing to do with how I feel about myself or my abilities. It doesn't even have anything to do with how I feel about you, despite the deep affection and respect that I have for you. If the success or failure of Bethesda Church, or any church for that matter, were up to our collective insight, our strength, our enthusiasm, our gifts, or even our grit and determination, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints would have vanished long ago. The true church, the ecclesia, the gathered ones who faithfully preach and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, has no earthly right to exist. And that's the secret of her success. The church, the true church, is cultivated and propagated and protected by God himself. God is supreme over his church. Now, over the long centuries that the human institution known as the church was culturally supreme, this was all too easy to forget. We often acted as if we were the ones who were in charge, that the church was ours to cultivate, ours to propagate, and ours to protect. But if you know your Bible and your church history, you'll know that the people of God have always been an odd assortment of the unlikeliest people. Poor people. Ugly people. Weak people. Sick people. Timid people. Stupid people. Marginalized people. Enslaved people. The last sort of people we would expect God to entrust a message of salvation to the whole earth. And yet this is what he does. This is what he has done over and over and over again. So in the moments when you're feeling stressed out about the future of the church, whether you're talking about the big C church all over everywhere, or just our tiny little piece of it, It's important to remember that it was always like this. That feeling like you're up against it is normal. At least for the true church, which has always been the minority of so-called Christendom. The true people of God were always a rump, a remnant, even in the Bible. So the obvious success that Bethesda Church enjoyed through the first 50-odd years of her founding, that was the outlier. What we're seeing now is the return to form, the sifting of God's people, the wilting of the grain that fell among rocks and weeds. Jesus said, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Likewise, in the moments when you or I are skeptical of our ability to do the things that God has called us to do, when we're pretty sure that the only thing we've got to contribute is one hot mess, 
it's important to remember that this is normal too. At least for the true Christian. God's got this. God's got us. Our mess is his mess to clean up. Now, this probably rubs you the wrong way. We don't like that. We want to clean up our own messes. But we can't. And we won't. But God can and will and is. That's the gospel. We may not understand all the things he's doing all the time. We may even get legitimately angry at some of the things that he's allowed to happen. But he will not let his purposes fail. And he's God, and we're not. This, in a nutshell, is the message of the book of Hebrews. God is God. And he has committed himself to his people. For that reason and that reason alone, we can have confidence to commit ourselves to him and to his people. I believe that this is why God led me to the book of Hebrews, as I waited on him to shape the vision for Bethesda Church, a vision that I've called Committed to Glory. Because Hebrews is a sermon, really, written to a church that has lost its confidence, a church that's tempted to shrink back, tempted to bow to the hostile pressures of the world out there, tempted to bend to the all-too-human reasoning of her people in here. I wrestled with the title of this vision for, for weeks. I'm well aware of the chilling effect that the word commitment has on people. And I know how self-inflated the word glory sounds to most ears. But the clear message of the Bible, and especially of Hebrews, is that God has committed us to glory. And that true glory comes through selflessness and suffering. He has committed himself to us, not only to be with us in our suffering, but to suffer and die for us. And in that way, to be glorified. And by that suffering, he has committed us to himself. And our commitment to him springs naturally, albeit unexpectedly, from that. If it was up to us and our efforts to build the institution known as the church, it would either be doomed to failure or it would end up looking pretty much like every other religious in, uh, tradition that the world has ever seen. Merely some complex expression of human power structures, defined by a haphazard accretion of arcane traditions and quaint superstitions that works for a while to help glue a society together, but which eventually gets tossed onto the trash heap of history. 
Now, of course, that is precisely what the world assumes about us. It's all well and good, they say, to use your religion, to have your private spiritual ecstasies, to form your moral convictions, to frame your existence with some nice story that helps you feel like there's meaning and purpose to life. But don't go pretending like you've got a claim on anyone else. Your religion will one day fail, just like all other obsolete religions have failed before it. Look, we're all just making it up as we go along, latching on to shiny bits and scraps of this and that to make the best of a bad, well, maybe not a bad, but at least a baffling situation. There's nothing new in this sentiment. The great writer Nabokov put it this way close to a hundred years ago. The cradle rocks above an abyss. And common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. And Nabokov was just paraphrasing a bleak strain of philosophy that goes back thousands of years. But I'm quoting him to show that the world's commitment not to offend, which sounds so nice, its agnostic insistence that we should just live and let live, or rather live and let die what no longer seems useful to us. What seems to us like such a reasonable perspective that Nabokov can call it common sense inevitably leads to darkness and despair. The sermon that we know as the book of Hebrews, by contrast, is shot through with light and hope from its opening lines that insist that God has spoken to us, to its final prayer of blessing, asking God to equip us with everything good for doing his will, to work in us what is pleasing to him. For all these reasons, I felt that Hebrews would be the perfect place to start when crafting this vision for our church with the goal of spurring us on toward love and good deeds. The sermon begins with God's revelation of himself by his son and ends with the provision of himself through Jesus Christ. In between, it shows in detail how his word and his work in the world were brought forth and carried out by Jesus. It is Jesus who embodies God's commitment to us. It is Jesus who inspires our work. And it is Jesus who does all the heavy lifting for the church. At the same time, you will have heard earlier that Hebrews contains quite a few stern warnings to the church. It is indeed possible for the church to abandon her calling to turn away from the living God. It is possible for us to become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Indeed, Hebrews says that it is possible for a church to fall away to such an extent that it will never again be brought back to repentance. 
Again, it is possible for a church to give up meeting together and to deliberately keep on sinning. In such cases, the only thing we can expect from God is judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It is possible for the church to become the enemy of God. It is a dreadful thing, the preacher warns the church, to fall into the hands of the living God. These sobering warnings to the church are the reason why the first of my three foundational commitments is biblical faithfulness. And the second is reliance on prayer. For there is indeed a good reason why a large number of formerly glorious church buildings are now boarded up or being converted into condos or performing arts centers or all manner of things that aren't churches. By far the most common reason that churches die is that somewhere along the way, the people and the pastors who led them lost faith in Jesus. By which I don't mean to say that they stopped believing in Jesus entirely, just that they lost faith in his ability or inclination to dwell among them, to make them holy, to provide for their needs. Hebrews calls this throwing away your confidence and shrinking back. Those churches that shrink back are destroyed. When you study church history, you see this pattern play out again and again. This, this drift, this loss of confidence leads to turning away, falling away, giving up meeting together, by, which leads to hardening by sin, to shrinking back, and eventually to the death and dissolution of the congregation. The ruin of the once proud cathedral, whether it's by wrecking ball, by repurposing, by weather and time, this stands as a testimony to the faithlessness of her people. It is a vivid symbol of God's withdrawal, which has always been his most terrible judgment on a community, on a city, on a nation. Such a withdrawal is the inevitable result, the predictable result when churches, and especially when the leaders question the truth and the authority of the Holy Scriptures, scorn the effectiveness of the means that God has given us to carry out his work, particularly prayer and preaching, and doubt the real power and active presence of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. God starts to seem quite small and distant. Whereas the problems just get bigger and heavier and more pressing. 
when the church stops expecting Jesus to show up, her words to him and about him may still be long-winded, at least for a time, but they do just become so much wind. Now, you may have noticed that I'm emphasizing that the warning passages I just referred to are directed mainly toward a church, that is, toward a group of people, and not toward individuals. When we read these warnings out of context, that is, forgetting that this is a sermon, a form of speech that uses potent language intended to convict and to persuade, these passages can trip us up. When we assume that they're doing more theological work than they were intended to, they can trouble us more than they ought to. Because they do stand in tension with what we read elsewhere in the Bible about the nature of God's lavish grace to us as individuals. Indeed, they stand in tension with the larger message of this very book, that is, that God has committed himself to us unconditionally. And it is that commitment that allows us to commit confidently to him and to one another in the church. But it's this relentless internal tension that gives Hebrew its dramatic power. It's the taut bowstring that drives the arrow home. So to be clear, Hebrews is not saying to individual believers that they can lose their salvation. Let me say that again to make sure you hear me. Hebrews is not saying to individual believers that they can lose their salvation. Hebrews is not saying that you your child or your brother or sister or your friend who once seemed so faithful but who has now inexplicably turned away is inevitably consigned to hell. That is not the message of Hebrews. Now the question of what these very passages that I've been talking about mean is actually what led me back to the book of Hebrews in the first place. As we talked about the possibility of me becoming Bethesda's next senior pastor, Mark challenged me to think about what my childhood faith had meant. More specifically, what my baptism by immersion in 1988 as a 12-year-old had meant. Was it truly a believer's baptism? The reason the question is relevant to me is because I went through a period of serious doubting and unholy living in my university years. Many people who grow up going to church come to the conclusion that they were never truly saved as children. Was that the case with me? Well, as I seriously devoted myself to tackling this question over the past number of weeks, I've used the benchmark that Pastor Mark has put to us regularly from his favorite chapter in the Bible, which is Romans 8, (laughs) the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Is the Holy Spirit present in us? As Romans 8, 9 to 10 puts it, You are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if 
the Spirit lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Well, I gave my life to Christ when I was a very little child. And while I don't remember doing it, looking back, for as long as I can remember, I have felt Jesus with me. Even when I tried to suppress that feeling, I never managed to escape it. When I have walked with him, when I have consciously pursued him, which on reflection is by far most of the years of my life, his presence, his presence never ceases to fill me with joy unspeakable and full of glory. On the other hand, when I was doing my best to ignore him, the knowledge of his presence, a presence that I did my best to deny, filled me with dread. That said, although those feelings are powerful and inescapable, Paul instructs us elsewhere to test ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith. That is, we shouldn't rely merely on our subjective feelings to know whether the Spirit lives in us. One of those tests is whether the fruit of the Spirit is showing and growing in us. Did I see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control growing in me as a child? Yes, I did. The Holy Spirit is also the Spirit who leads us into all truth. He is the Spirit who convicts us of sin. And He is the Spirit who glorifies the Son. And I would say that all these things defined me as a child confidence in the Bible. Godly grief at my own sinfulness and a glorying in Jesus Christ and in the grace that comes only through him. Now, all these things are the markers that the Spirit is in me and has been in me since childhood. And so they are the things that to me are the most important. They are sufficient to lay to rest in my mind once and for all the question of whether when I was baptized, Christ had indeed saved me. And since I don't generally like to talk about myself, I'd prefer to leave things there. But it's important for you to have a sense not only of who I am, who you know me to be, but also how I have become who I am. How God has prepared me to lead Bethesda through what are sure to be difficult times that lie ahead of us, if you as a church vote to affirm me as your next senior pastor. So I'll sketch out for you some of the more important spiritual details of my life. Well, throughout my life, two obvious passions have defined me. My faith in God and music. 
At the same time, I've always had this intuition. And this feels embarrassing to express because it's hard to say without sounding arrogant and foolish. I've had this uncanny sense that my life has some unusual orientation or trajectory, like, like God is preparing me for something, something inescapable, some peculiar work leading his peculiar people in a peculiar time. Now, maybe lots of other people feel this way too. I, I can't speak to that. But in any case, from childhood onwards, God has provided me with unusual opportunities, opportunities that I certainly haven't deserved. People offering me chances to learn or to lead or to perform, people intensely interested in what I had to, to say, what I thought. People who straight out told me that I had an unusual gift that God would surely use. People who encouraged me to pay attention to that gift and challenged me not to squander that gift. So I was already heavily involved in Christian leadership as a teenager. And at the same time, like most teenagers, I was enthusiastically committed. While at the same time, I was keenly aware of my sins and other failings. And then, though I grew up as a Baptist, we left my childhood church and bounced around for a number of years in the charismatic movement. I had wonderful parents. But without a home church, without strong musical and spiritual mentors to disciple me outside of my home, my faith became more and more unstable. And I was more and more overwhelmed by a sense of failure. I felt bitter about the hypocrisy I saw around me and worse, inside me. At about the same time, I began to feel this increasing tension between the demands of my Christian life and the demands of my musical life. I didn't have, as I said, the kind of musical or spiritual mentors who could help me navigate that tension well. So when I left my home in Calgary for university in Brandon, I bought into the lie that that tension just couldn't be resolved. That one thing or the other had to go. I also started to believe this common misconception that art is inherently prophetic. So... I began to think that music could fulfill this strange sense I had of a divine trajectory. To my shame, I threw myself into my music and the hedonistic lifestyle that I thought it entailed. And I turned away from God. By God's grace, in my first year of university, I started dating another lapsed Baptist. Eventually we got married. <laughs> we got married and we went to grad school in Indiana together. And by the time I got a job in the Winnipeg Symphony a year later, in 1999, we were encouraging one another on our shaky way back to the Lord. I think I was a lot more shaky than Michelle was.
Because I, I still felt that old tension, wanting to embrace this freewheeling identity of an artist. But God was working in me, patiently, gently. He eventually helped me to understand that I had made music and success in music into an idol. All the while, he began to introduce me to people and lead me to books that helped to ground my faith and even to integrate it with music for his glory as I repented of that idolatry. And praise God, he gave me a delight in the scriptures and an abiding conviction that the good news is indeed good news. So by the time I went through a life-threatening cardiac arrest in 2012, my faith was firmly established so that that near-death experience, far from rattling me, only further affirmed the nearness and the sweetness of the Lord as he carried me and my family through the whole ordeal. Then in 2015, on a missions trip to Ecuador, felt this unexpected and powerful calling to pastoral ministry. I didn't have any idea how that could ever happen. But still, I was so keen about it that I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't imagine spending the rest of my life doing anything else. I wanted right then and there to quit the WSO and go to seminary. But through the wise intervention of mentors and my very patient and long-suffering wife, I was helped to see that this strange trajectory that God had been leading me on meant that, once again, my training was not going to look like the typical pastoral training route. And indeed, it's been, it's been rather different from what I expected certainly slower than I expected, but more gracious than I could have ever hoped. For my, my pastoral training has been more of a mentorship, an apprenticeship, than formal course of study. Although I did take some seminary courses, I quickly found the seminary's commitment to the Bible woefully inadequate and the coursework insufficient in terms of what I wanted to learn about the Bible and, and theology, as well as a lot more inefficient than what I could learn on my own. Not to mention, impossible to fit into my work schedule. But after eight years of ad hoc but intense personal study and apprenticeship, I feel excited and assured of the Lord's blessing when I consider the, the prospect of serving you as senior pastor, though I'm still daunted and humbled by it, knowing that I will always be insufficient to the task. All the same, I'm trusting the Lord to make up what I'm lacking. That said, I see, I see clear gaps in my learning, and I intend on shoring them up keep on shoring them up, and I'm committed to ongoing 
intensive study. And I'm comforted by the fact that throughout history, God has raised up and greatly used many men and women who had little more than a living heart and a willing mind, who trusted in God's sovereign goodness and committed themselves steadfastly to prayer. And these days I rest easily, growing as I am in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I know that he who promised is faithful, that he will do it. I'm telling you all this not only so that you know how I came to be here, but also to affirm the message of Hebrews from my own life. I have clear evidence of God's commitment to me despite my faithlessness for a time. He brought me back to himself through his church, through the kindness of the members, people like you, through the patience and wisdom of two primary pastor mentors, first Tom Castor at Grant Memorial, and now Pastor Mark. And I want to thank Mark especially for his support and encouragement and for trusting God's leading and bringing me on as a fellow pastor. And also for challenging me recently to think deeply about my own past, since it will in turn help me give better pastoral care. And I want to thank you too, Bethesda. You've welcomed me and my family with open arms. From the very first Sunday we came, we we felt your love and your warmth in love and gratitude for the commitments that God has shown to me through you, Bethesda. I want to serve you. Knowing that in reality, it is the Lord Christ I'm serving. I want to encourage you passionately and to challenge you gently. I want to care for you and lead you well and help you discern what the Lord is saying to us today in his word by his spirit. And I want to underline these words of Hebrews to you after those fearsome words of sober warning to the church. That just like the preacher says, I am confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. I want to reassure you that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. I want to exhort you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. I want to challenge you because we all from time to time tend to get a little too comfortable, a little complacent, to imitate those who through faith 
and patience inherit what has been promised. That is, I want to rouse you to commit to God's purposes and to one another, inspired by his faithfulness to us. I hope and pray that you will embrace this vision, and I'd invite you to review it and to pray over it in the next couple of days before the AGM on Wednesday night. As you do, you'll see that some of the priorities address stuff in here, while others draw our attention out there to the world outside these walls, whereas some encompass both. Over my next three sermons, we'll look at all of them. Next week, we'll talk about our responsibilities to one another in a sermon I'm calling The Commons. On November 12th, in the sermon called The Mandate, we'll talk about the all-encompassing priorities of worship and preaching. And finally, we'll direct our sights outwards with a message called The Mission on November 19th. Well, I began this message by asserting that Bethesda's future is certain and secure, not because of me, not because of you, but because of God. Yet he does work through us. Faulty and frail though we are, as we commit to walking together selflessly through the challenges and hardships that we'll face, confident of his commitment to us, seeking his will, relying on his strength, trusting to his means of grace, and expecting his provision. In this moment, I do believe that God has provided me for you and you for me. He has provided by drawing us together, by causing our unlikely trajectories to converge, and that for the foreseeable future, God has committed us to one another, committed us to love one another, and to serve alongside one another, committed us to his glory. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider in the coming days how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's pray together. Our wise God and loving Father, how your ways are higher than our ways. We can never fathom. Commit us to your glory, we ask. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I won't be long. First, I want to assure you that Yuri still has two wonderful parents. 
They haven't gone. In fact, there's there's one of them, and the other one is serving somewhere in here. So I just wanted to let you know they're they're still here and they're still doing great. Uh, secondly, I just wanted to give my own commendation to not only this message but also this ministry and this calling that Yuri has responded to and his family. And it's a very strange thing for the senior pastor to be talk to be sitting in a congregation as an audience congregant. Uh, with his successor speaking as his successor potentially given your endorsement and approval. Um, But as I said in my letter this past week, it's exactly the right thing. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus is bringing to us, and he's just asking us, will we follow him? And so I appreciate very much uh, Yuri's continued uh, humble yet uh, ambitious uh, step forward and uh, look forward to the future. Let me, let me just pray for just a moment. Lord, thank you for this opportunity for us to hear from your heart and from Yuri's heart. And We know the book of Hebrews is all about your heart and your heart for us and your heart for your creation. And We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come and given yourself up for us that we might be right with you and made right with you and with each other. I pray in the coming days and weeks that we will be hearing from you clearly and that we will be also obeying you joyfully as we step into the future you have in mind for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming today. We'll see you on Wednesday. And as benediction, I'll offer the one from Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in God's grace.